Welcome to the 15 past 15 podcast, season two. My name is Birgit Tremorvena. And I'm Martin Dizenberry. In this season, we're discussing wealth and the writing of history. The topic of wealth can be approached in many ways, in terms of economic inequalities or natural resources, or the relationship between labor and wealth production. Today, we're interested to think about the materiality of wealth and the ways in which cultural approaches to economic history bring new understandings to the topic of wealth in history. With that in mind, we're delighted to be joined today by Giorgio Riello, Professor and Chair for Early Modern Global History at the European University Institute in Florence. Giorgio, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Giorgio, how did you end up being interested in early modern economic history, in particular in material culture? I started um, really in being interested in debates over the Great Divergence. The Great Divergence was a paradigm um, really coined in the 1990s uh, for um, a question that was around, been around for a long time. And essentially it's about why uh, the West uh, moved to, a, to be much richer than the rest of the world, in particular of Asia. And in the 1990s, the publication of a specific book by Kenneth Pomeranz called The Great Divergence was published actually in 2000, um, produced a new interpretation of what were the causes of uh, this divergence. And he pointed out that the causes might have been more access to resources, in particular to coal, and access to markets, who you're selling your products to. Um, in that framework, I started working on cotton, and I was interested in shifting this debate that was extremely macro, it was about entire economies and of continents, to a much smaller scale of a specific sector, a very important sector, because cotton was the sector of the Industrial Revolution in Britain and later on in continental Europe, but it was also the most important textile, uh, textile product, product in uh, uh, in uh, parts of Asia, in particular in India, and that being so for the best of a thousand years. So I was interested in linking back the story of industrialization and divergence to what had happened in the previous centuries. Was there any moment that particularly crystallized this uh, more micro approach that you were trying to bring to this big debate? Yes, I, it's a very specific episode. Um, I was already um, dealing with the problems of divergence and struggling to um, think about how to bring it down, as you said, from a very macro perspective to a more um, located, I would say. And I was in the galleries of the Metropolitan Museums in New York, where you have a series of rooms that shows you interiors of different um, areas of the world at specific times. So it's the later Middle Ages, the period of the Renaissance in particular. And two rooms um, show you a Renaissance interior, the study room of a Renaissance scholar, studiolo, and then you, you pass into the next room and uh, you're shown instead the study room of a Japanese scholar. And notwithstanding the fact that all these exercises in quantification tell us that Europe was already much richer and more advanced than the rest of the world and including East Asia, actually those rooms did tell you a different story. And it looked to me that actually the level of refinement 
uh, of the Japanese room was so much higher than, uh, than the equivalent Renaissance room. And from there, I started thinking in a very material way, you might say, being in a museum and being confronted with objects, in how I could tell a slightly different narrative if I started from this point of view, rather than thinking about entire economies. And what exactly did your research on cotton add to this debate? My research on cotton was an attempt to scale down a debate that was very, very macro. So it was about entire economy, it was about the Yanzi Delta, it was about Britain and Western Europe, to um, uh, sector um, analysis. Of course, as I said, it was an important uh, sector, so it was a, a key sector of both Asian and European economies. From there, I, I, I tried to scale it down even more, if if I may say, in a sense that I tried to see exactly what were the mechanisms through which um, an industry that was very much consolidated in Asia was not just transplanted elsewhere, but reshaped, um, and reshaped not just through the adoption of mechanical devices, uh, power looms and spinning technologies, but reshaped also uh, in its products, so they are quite different from what was produced in Asia, and also a reshaping of consumers' attitudes and consumer tastes. So I tried to bring together a more qualitative dimension. In fact, at the, at the end of the day, uh, for me, the kind of explananda, the original explananda, the great diversions, put a lot of emphasis on coal, for instance, are not terribly important. Eventually, the cotton industry will use coal, steam, uh, but that's actually quite late in, well into the 19th, the 19th century. Um, markets, colonial markets, perhaps are more important for my type of explanation. But in my book, I also try to explain how the ways in which this production was um, set up and the way in which it worked in Asia was actually quite different from the way in which it worked in Europe. Partially because what happened in Europe is that it, Europe was a continent that didn't have cotton as a raw material and therefore it had to be grown elsewhere, in particular in plantations in the Americas, and that's a chapter really in the history of uh, slavery. Um, and also the other basic difference is that Europe didn't have also key knowledge of the process of production, uh, in particular in finishing, so in, uh, in the dyeing of uh, cotton textiles, but also in spinning and weaving. Um, you just mentioned consumer patterns and also the trajectories of knowledge and colonial dimensions in this whole history, how cotton came to Europe. What does that mean for cotton as product or as a commodity in this early modern period? Was it a luxury good or was it an everyday fabric? Yeah, so the discussion over textiles more generally, not just about cotton, uh, has been of a, a, a great interest to me um, because in many ways my contribution wasn't just to big debates in global history but also to a subfield that has been quite a large field in, uh, in economic history, and that's to say textile production. And we started with a kind of assumption that was very Eurocentric or very European, you might say, that out of the four basic natural fibers that are wool, 
uh, hemp that is really linen, uh, cotton and silk. The one that is luxurious is silk. Uh, the one that is instead cheap is cotton. And then wool is more on the expensive side and linen is more on the cotton side, the cheaper side. That is very much of a European understanding and a post-1800 understanding. If you go, for instance, to China, you will find that the D-fiber is silk. And that's not really a luxury. It's more of a kind of necessity. It's an everyday type of fiber and cloth. Um, you will find that wool is, if not absent, very rare. Uh, and this is why wool, for instance, is imported from Europe and other parts of Asia. Um, you will find that linen is not as successful as it is in Europe, in which in quantitative terms, uh, linen remains D-fiber, de, uh, and so on. So you start seeing that there are very different um, situations in different parts of the world. So I was interested in that because... Early on in the history of cotton, cotton is actually, you might say, a luxury in Europe. It's something that is fairly rare and fairly expensive, especially in the Middle Ages, especially before Europe is able to produce its own pure cotton, so cotton weft and warp, entirely made of cotton type of textiles. Um, silk arrives in Europe much earlier than cotton. We're talking about at least three centuries earlier Although silk never becomes a very large sector, and I'm currently working on, on silk and trying to explain that uh, why is not the case. It's a reverse story of why silk has not become the uh, sector brought in from Asia that has changed entirely the European economies. So one of the things uh, you've been arguing, therefore, is that a global history perspective forces us to think about this this traditional distinction between luxury goods and commodities in a new way. And certainly in some of the work you've done, you've even gone so far as to write a typology of luxury. Um, I suppose I instinctively feel a bit uncomfortable with typologies and global history because so, so much of the time they come out of a set of European definitions. Um, how have you tried to avoid that in your work? So my, my concern, and this is a shift from my research specifically on textiles to a book that I've written actually on, on the topic of luxury, passing through also what I've written on fashion, is the fact that every time I was presenting, people were coming along and using um, a somewhat unnuanced vocabulary. And so sometimes they were talking about commodities, Sometimes they were talking about luxuries. Sometimes, actually, the two were more or less the same. So you might say a luxury as, as a commodity. And so I started thinking, what am I really dealing with? So the response from an economic historian would be mostly about price and quantities. But in many ways, that's uh, only part of the story. Once you start also factoring in change, the fact that people want different things or different varieties of perhaps the same type of cloth with different designs perhaps over time and how you put then what I call fashion this change over time and space into the equation. Um, I tried also to create a typology and as you pointed out all typologies have the problem that they are defied by reality uh, so they are distilled version that starts with uh, some presumptions. Uh, very often, I would say you're quite right, these presumptions tend to be quite European. 
In the case of luxury in particular, it's very problematic because if you look at the literature and if you look also at today's notions of luxuries, they tend to be very much uh, part of a European tradition. And then there is this kind of um, paradigm that says, well, other parts of the world adopts these uh, goods. The typologies um, of luxury that I introduced um, uh, between positional, ceremonial and aspirational luxury, it, it tried to think about what might have been the reasons uh, that people wanted something different, something more expensive. Uh, although uh, at the end in, in uh, a chapter that I've written for a book, um, my explanation was that perhaps the European path was different from that of, uh, of Asia. Um, as I said, the, reality, the historical reality turns out to be more complex than, than, than the theory. But still, I think to think about why the different reasons why people might want uh, something luxurious and how we are going to define that is even more difficult uh, might be a worthwhile exercise. So, but then you did write the global history of luxury. So you've thought about it a lot. You had a very interesting material for your research. Can you tell us a bit about the sources you use in order to wrap your head around what is luxury from a global perspective? The type of history that I co-wrote with uh, my colleague Peter McNeil was really based on typologies of objects. So instead of considering debates on what is luxury, what is not, or whether it's a positive or negative thing, we decided to, to think about which are the types of objects, the type of materials that through history have retained this association with luxury or are perceived as luxurious. And these include, of course, a great deal of textiles, in particular silk textiles, uh, include housing and palaces as uh, here in Florence, uh, and um, include also uh, gems that... Uh, uh, become fast becoming a very important topic of research in global history, not to say precious materials, and includes also things that we find perhaps strange today. Um, in the early 20th century, a great forms of luxury was plumbing and bathrooms, uh, but throughout history, um, you will find that uh, furniture, for instance, was uh, a rather uh, a rather important um, type of luxury. I mean, as you say this, I'm looking at your slightly functional filing cabinets behind you, and we have a slightly functional office table in front of us. How, how can you read a piece of furniture as a source? That relates to the work I've done really on material culture. Um, I spend quite a lot of time in thinking how historians can work with objects. And it's not necessarily just to take objects as sources, in the same way in which we deal with a manuscript or uh, any other uh, primary or secondary source, but to think about the fact that an object that might be, for instance, a piece of cloth coming from the Middle Ages, a piece of beautiful silk, was there at the time and is still there uh, with us, normally in museums, they've been museified. There are different techniques, so in the same way in which you have a series of tools to read a manuscript, that you go into paleography, and then you start thinking about con context, uh, you start thinking about the institutions that produce those documents, the same can be done also with objects. For instance, one area that is incredibly important is to understand how an object has been made. 
So the technologies that are behind the creation of an object. A great deal of luxury turns out to be not necessarily about the materiality itself, but about the fact that the technologies that produce those commodities, those goods or those luxuries, you might say, uh, were in, in very short supply. Can you give an example of an object where the production made it into a luxury good? Um, there are s- several. Uh, you might say that every manufactured object in many ways uh, f- fulfilled this definition. In the case of silk, for instance, uh, the limited supply of the raw material, because it comes out uh, from uh, silk worms and so on, from a very complicated process, creates exactly this, uh, this outcome, the fact that you have a quite an expensive raw material that then is then pass, passes through all sorts of other complex, uh, for instance, weaving technologies. Uh, with furniture that we were discussing earlier, it might be, for instance, supply of specific woods. Uh, it's particularly what I call exotic woods in the um, 17th and 18th century, um, mostly from the Americas, that made a piece of furniture particularly beautiful um, because you can create effects of marquetry. So you have this inlaying of different colors of woods and some of these woods are incredibly expensive. So the notion of being exotic and rarity plays an important role in how luxury is defined in the early modern period. Another important area in how to get by luxury objects is uh, diplomacy, diplomatic relations. Can you say a bit about diplomatic gift giving in this context? Yes, earlier on I, I, I discussed the ways in which we can categorize um, luxury. But it's not just about the objects, it's also about the occasion or the situation that leads to a specific object entering this category of luxury. Um, a great deal of the scholarship is being about economic transactions, so about trade and exchange, and indeed about the commodification of luxuries. But I was also interested in the opposite, that to say when these very expensive, sometimes rare, sometimes we say the exotic objects is a very loaded term, of course, um, were exchanged for other purposes. And in the pre-modern period, one of these occasions was really diplomacy. So for an ambassador sent from a nation to another nation, this might be in Europe, but I was particularly interested in the exchange between Europe and non-European nations. Um, The ambassador had to go to the other court presenting gifting. It was a a sign of respect, uh, paying homage to uh, the king. Sometimes these... um, Um, embassies were very large and the gifts had to match the size of the embassy. I wrote in particular about the embassies between France and the kingdom of Siam, present-day Thailand, in the late 17th century, in which uh, several uh, mutual embassies were sent, two from France to Siam and two from Siam to France, um, taking several years, of course, because uh, communication was not very rapid at the time, uh, but also uh, carrying uh, enormous quantities of um, vases, um, uh, silver objects, uh, tapestries, and so on, glass, every typologies of objects that you might think are uh, features in the vocabulary of uh, 17th century uh, luxury wearing there. So from gift giving to rarity of products to 
the amount of time and energy that goes into the labor of luxury goods is your argument that this focus on high-end commodities a new and distinctive way of helping us think about the role of wealth in global history? So we started really thinking about wealth at a very macro, macro level uh, in terms of divergence, in terms of entire nations, if not continents. Um, the perspective that luxury, but also uh, the analysis of specific commodities, not to say of specific objects, allow you to do is different. You go into the specific mechanisms and not just long-term trajectories, also um, thinking about the cultural value um, together with the economic value, the creation of new social practices, for instance, the introduction of new beverages in Europe in the early modern period, coffee, chocolate, and so on, tea, um, creates completely new social social uh, situations and way of socializing. So I was interested in these kind of mechanisms and not just thinking about who becomes rich and who remains poor or vice versa, who gets rich and who remains more or less on the same level. George Herrera, many thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you.